to be here on the Chug and Chat podcast. This is Liz, and I'm here with my amazing um, co-creator, collaborator um, of the um, Disrupting the Narrative of Women in Tech mini-series that we've been working on together. Um, and I just couldn't be more excited. I've like waited to um, introduce this particular set of episodes for a long time. Um, it's been a really exciting time. So I'll, I'll just stop there and let Diana kind of reintroduce herself. You guys have been, you know, chuggernauts for a while and listening for a little bit. Um, may remember Diana's name from last season, um, you know, when we worked on our immigration episode. Um, so Diana, please introduce yourself. Hello, chuggernauts. You uh, have really carried this project. So hello, yeah. chuggernauts. Hello. Um, yeah, so excited to be working on this project and finally introducing it with Liz. We've been working on it for about six months, maybe. And um, it's just been great meeting a bunch of women working in tech and hearing their stories and talking about some of the issues, but also getting a lot of inspiration and um, advice from them on, you know, how to address some of the gender discrimination that we see in tech. So um, yeah. 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 So how, so let's like, tell 
our lovely listeners how it all started. And I, okay, I'm going to brag for Diana because I know she's not going to admit that this is the case, but this was like a thousand percent her idea, like a hundred percent. She came to me, um, you know, oops, cheers, cheers, everyone, cheers, <laughs> um, with this idea, really. And I know, um, remind me, Diana, it really stemmed from some of the media already. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it started with hearing about Ellen Powell's case, um, Susan, the Susan Fowler memo, and just hearing some of the stories in the media, um, and just from women I know working in tech about um, hurdles that they've faced and um, discrimination they've had to deal with, and so... You know, sounded like a good chug and chat topic. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's so funny because we've had so much happen. It's, we're just coming up here. Um, you know, we just came up on our uh, one-year anniversary, January 26th. Our yeah. season three release date is our one-year anniversary, which is hard Ooh. to believe. We've done, yeah, we've done a lot. Um, but everything that's happened just even in the last six months, you guys, is huge. Like, I mean, the fact that there was very, I mean, more and more, but not quite as much media on sexual harassment, um, you know, sexism, gender disparity, um, et cetera, um, in the media as there is now. I mean, this was pretty much pre-Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein, we've been debating, like, (laughs) which way to represent him, like Harvey Weinstein, maybe it's appropriate, we're not sure, but... Um, yeah, I mean, this really started as, you know, some other women were courageous enough to step forward in the media and start talking about this. And it's just sort of been an avalanche effect ever since. Yeah. What's been going on in the last six months? I don't know. I mean, I do think the Weinstein, um, situation has created kind of a tipping point to start talking about this. And then something that we've noticed is that it seems like there's more immediate accountability, um, which is a great thing. And there's, there's a repercussion now. Um, when women are coming out with their stories, they're being heard and they're being believed. And so that's been really exciting to see. Yeah, so, you know, just to give you guys a little bit more background, um, you know, Diana really directed me to a um, co- women's community. Is it actually officially called Women in Tech? It's called, it's actually called Tech Ladies. Tech Ladies, <laughs> Tech Ladies, yes. thank you. Yeah, and it's a great growing community. Um, check it out, they're on Facebook um, and the interwebs it's a private in general. Group. <laughs> it's a private group. Um, but it's almost 20,000 women now um, working in tech in the startup world, the venture capital world, and it's really been a great community to be a part of. Oh my God, it's incredible. I mean, just on a given day to see people asking for help, providing resources, best practices. Um, I mean, hundreds of comments um, when there's women seeking help in one way or another. Advice, resources. um, Absolutely, yeah. Interview ideas, you know, how to handle negotiations in a male-dominated environment. I mean, I've just seen an outpouring of support yeah yeah it's an incredible community and events too local events um i'm part of the tech ladies oakland chapter now (laughs) and um actually i'm helping them set up uh an event coming up in march so it's going to be focused on mentorship for women in tech so so amazing yeah Yeah. oh my gosh and so what will what will be the criteria of 
you know, so being able to participate. Anybody can participate. Um, it's going to be, you know, the community is focused toward women in tech and not only in technical roles, though. And um, we're going to be matching up women who are kind of further along in their careers with women who are kind of just entering the industry. Um, oh, that's great. Which, by the way, is something we've heard a lot in this podcast series is how important it is to have a mentor. So we have quite a bit yeah um and we had a lot of women who are pretty far along in their careers or um you know really getting there and making moves mm-hmm. <laughs> who uh had mentors themselves and are now giving back and and mentoring yeah. themselves which is really yeah fantastic to see yeah. and to hear um well that's that's super great um you know i i know that we also wanted to call out of course that um it's a really important time to be talking about things like sexual harassment and sexual assault when we have a president um, who is clearly guilty of multiple instances of sexual assault um, and is, of course, not doing anything to further along the conversation. Um, In fact, is pardoning people like Joe... Arpeo, right. who's now running for Senate. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm just like, oh my God, that fucking idiot. Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, I know that you feel strongly about that too, Diana, that it's like really important to have women talking about this. Yeah. Um, I mean, if nothing else, you know, this period of time <laughs> with Trump in office, I hope is, it seems like it sparked a, uh, more awareness and activism yeah which is great you know it does um so maybe that's the one thing we can take away yeah that's been going on i guess yeah i guess you're right um another alarming thing that um diana has directed my (laughs) attention to she just gave me an eyebrow waggle y'all that's pretty (laughs) it's pretty cute um, is is um, a real cute thing that Silicon Valley is participating in. So there was a Vanity Fair, right, article? Mm-hmm. A Vanity Fair piece talking about a Silicon Valley trend for sex parties. Tell, tell, tell our listeners a little about what you Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess. Well, she didn't see anything. She didn't <laughs> <Yeah>. see anything. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I didn't see it myself. But, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, apparently... Apparently, this is a thing <laughs> that's happening. Lots of wealthy male founders, you know, and then lots of women who are younger and probably feel like they're a bit coerced into going to these and, you know. And you said that, that, that in some instances it was actual, like, bosses of some of these women who are inviting them to these parties. Yeah. So all, they, all, they feel, of course, a pressure to To, to go and be a part of it. Right. Exactly. And, and what are the implications behind not showing up? Like, what are, what are their right. options? Right. Yeah. Are, but it's kind of, it's like a double bind because it's like if they don't go, then, you know, they're not part of things. But if they go, then that's being held against them in the oh, workplace. Oh, that's terrible. You know? Oh, that's yeah. terrible. Yeah. Oh, my God. So that's real sweet. Um, good to know. Way to go, Silicon Valley. Way You're already ruining my life with all of your traffic. And <laughs> this is pretty alarming so (laughs) you know we we did find another thing that was just kind of interesting in talking to these women I mean not surprising with everything going on like the me too campaign and other activist campaigns that are shedding light on the fact that it really is always the majority of women who are experiencing things like sexism right 
sexual assault, et cetera. Right. And we know it's at least 50% of women working in STEM jobs um, have experienced some form of gender discrimination or harassment. And it's higher for minorities, unfortunately. Yeah. You said for black women, it's 62%, I think was one. Yeah. That we, we saw. Yeah. Yeah, that's I, that's really alarming. And, you know, I mean, you'll even see it, I guess, this represented in our interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, we had one of seven mm-hmm. interviews yeah. um, who hadn't yet experienced uh, any real feeling of gender bias or um, any blatant sexual harassment or sexual assault yeah. um, in the workplace. Um but she's pretty new right. in her career. Right. And she reflected herself on whether, you know, that might change as she continues to kind of climb the ladder. You know, a lot of the exactly. women that we talked to were founders, were <laughs> right. higher level engineers. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And we know that um, another aspect of that is that among companies with women founders, I think one statistic we saw was that of the $60 billion that venture capital firms invested just in the past couple of years, only 1.5 billion went to businesses of female founders. Oh my God. We also found out um, from one of our interviewees actually told us that um, <clears throat> only 4% of um, companies with female founders are led by women of color. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is, Which is messed up as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Oh, so not to be a big old bummer to you guys, but I mean, you really will see this reflected in our interviews, like what these folks have experienced. Um, I will say before we just talk a little bit more about the folks we interviewed, um, that so much like I've experienced with most amazing women in my life, um, all of these incredibly smart and driven women, um, all were very hopeful and optimistic and had a lot of, um, real solutions and things that they are already doing in the community to really combat all of the things that all the themes that we talk about in this mini series. So, uh, there's still a lot of hope and, uh, you know, so I think that it's a, it's an excellent mini series because we get at the heart of the issues, but we have a lot of very viable solutions already, you know, being put in place and hopefully will continue to happen. Um, so we do have, like, of course, some incredible women that agreed to do this. Um, again, most of whom we uh, mercilessly recruited from uh, the Tech Ladies uh, Facebook community. These women are incredible, not only because of what they've done in tech, but also with their vast backgrounds. I mean, who do yeah. we have? We have we folks have... with backgrounds, not just in tech, but in... Science, um, you know, public health, uh, linguistics, image and video compression, and motherhood. <laughs> it's been very enlightening, um, and I think we uh, you know, hope to continue to talk to women in tech about their experiences as things continue to change. Yeah, definitely. Thank you all so much. <laughs> thank you, listeners, and thank you to our interviewees for being a part of this project. Vanessa Mason is a co-founder of a digital public health venture fund. I begin with thanking her, of course, and telling her a little bit more about the podcast. Of course, of course. I've definitely, you know, been there, seen a number of things. And yeah, 
and overall is just an incredible woman. So we just thought it was obvious that she should kick off our mini-series, and so we started with her interview. Please enjoy. You know, we really created it so we could try to hold space for conversation and even discourse, which like, <laughs> maybe I'm an idealist, but something I'm hoping can still influence decision-making. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and especially, you know, to hold space for conversations about continuing the fight for intersectional feminism and against racism, xenophobia, homophobia, you know, gender disparity, sexual harassment, and, um, you know, the differences, you know, even seeing between white women versus women of color in tech and all of that. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. There's just, you know, a lot of, a lot of areas all, all around and the discourse does tend to be rather simplified and distilled and still not even moving forward, even though it's simple. <laughs> yeah, I know. It seems simple to me too, but anyway, I will back up. I just, of course, have read a little bit about you. I know that you're currently a founder of your own company, which is awesome. Um, yeah. But if you're willing, why don't you tell us just a little bit about, you know, your career in general um, and how it brought you all the way up to founding your own company? Yeah, sure. So I can start with my arrival to the Bay Area. So I've always worked in healthcare, but in a few different areas that were outside of tech. Uh, so I started my career doing public health work, uh, first in the U.S. and then abroad. So I worked in Argentina and Mozambique. Uh, went to grad school, worked on uh, a couple of different major initiatives related to tech in global health settings. Um, and then when I graduated, I moved on to working in biotech. So all this is to say that wow. like my background by the time that I moved out to the Bay Area was uh, definitely diverse, but still industry specific in that I really understood how the healthcare, how healthcare basically worked in a lot of different areas. My sure. specialty was really in understanding how health systems work. So when you're talking about technology, it definitely is like a higher level understanding of, under, uh, of kind of knowing where there were sort of nodes of problems within healthcare and where there were areas that tech could fall into. So definitely a very like consulting high level you know, business problem solving uh, kind of way to show up in tech. Sure. Um, somewhat explains like why I ended up where I did when I um, arrived to the Bay Area. So I um, moved to San Francisco at the end of 2012, like literally a week after Hurricane Sandy hit um, oh, wow. in New York. <laughs> and um, I was working at, at Ruck Health, which at the time was solely a digital health incubator and now of course has evolved as a venture fund and I think someone's still doing an incubator in a sense, but basically I, I came out and I was um, leading their, their gender diversity initiative actually called XX and Health. And so XX and Health was specifically focused on improving, um, it basically increasing women in positions of leadership within digital health. Kind of looked at it as this opportunity that, hey, healthcare is undergoing this, you know, huge sort of revolution, disruption, transformation, whatever buzzword you want to throw at it <laughs> um, in terms of an industry. Um, and both because of and also in spite of what had been happening before in healthcare, that this was a ripe opportunity to really focus on the issue of women in leadership in healthcare. Um, and some of the same statistics that you probably know about in tech certainly apply in healthcare, you know, that 4% of the sort of most major uh, healthcare companies, 4% of those CEOs are women. Um, and that, unfortunately, statistic has held pretty steady even from 2012 when I moved out here until now. Might have wow. fluctuated one to two percentage points, but really hasn't moved 
um, a whole, whole lot. Um, but because I was at Rock Health, of course, a lot of it was around like, how do we get more women to apply specifically to the accelerator, but also just be more active in the industry overall, uh, both as, uh, of course, startup founders. So that's the first piece of that. The second piece of that is more active in this space as employees. And so a lot of what I did for both women-led startups, as well as women who were super interested in this space was connecting them to employment opportunities in this space. Um, right. And then, of course, because this is still tech, you know, it's just a niche of tech, you know, people still need investment. So to the extent that there were women investors that were really looking for companies, to the extent that there were women-led companies that were trying to find investment opportunities, connecting all of those dots behind the scenes, and of course, offering programming in terms of uh, events uh, that really just uh, helped women... Like, help provide women a platform to be able to tell stories so much the same way that you're doing with your podcast. A lot of women would tell stories about their, both their sort of um, the intersections of their personal and professional lives and like why they were in healthcare, why they were excited about tech and innovation and like where they saw both themselves personally and like how they were contributing to women being leaders in this space. Um, oh, that's awesome. That's yeah. Cool. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was like this like interesting nexus of, diversity and healthcare and tech and innovation all happening at the same time. And for me, who's like a person who like loves being a general, like a generalist and like loves seeing these sort of like higher level kind of conversations. Like it was a super um, interesting role to be in because it kind of like gave yeah. me a seat to like everything happening digital health innovation wise um, at, at that time. And also even kind of going forward. Um, so I worked at Rock Health like a little bit under a year and uh, because I think I think I didn't quite mention this, but yes, I, did, I had done public health work before um, both in the US and abroad and I had actually earned my master's in public health, which is why I was living in New York firstly at the time and then started working in biotech. Um, and so I kind of missed doing more public health work, but I also didn't want to go back to doing it in the same settings I was doing before. And so uh, sure. I ended up in this uh found this role at a nonprofit consulting organization called Zero Divide, whose entire mission was focused on leveraging technology for vulnerable populations. Um, and I led all of their health, uh, health initiatives. So it basically was working with designers and developers to pilot technologies that could address uh, health issues within vulnerable populations, everything from SMS, um, SMS interventions to um, web applications to kind of looking at like what sort of policy implications and needs there were within this space. So again, like another high level view, but kind of on this other side of the healthcare market, like more on the sort of Medicaid eligibility, a lot more on kind of looking at like free clinics, like a lot like where the public sector was starting to ever so slightly tiptoe into uh, the commercial space, like within innovation. Uh, and so that really, uh, and a lot of that work because it was pretty new and even now in the work that I'm, I'm doing now like people are still slowly coming around to having this conversation about how you talk about tech and innovation in a way that isn't just about um, the commercial markets and in particular like the commercial markets where you're talking about people who are pretty well educated have pretty high incomes um, because in our economy like that's not that's not most of the healthcare sort of patients and consumers like most sure yeah yeah <laughs> like half, half the births in this country are are with babies who are covered by medicaid i mean like yeah like it's 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 pretty massive and, and and increasingly more so this sort of idea of vulnerable populations isn't necessarily like the minority and the aberration it's increasingly becoming more of like the norm uh, and so a lot of the work i did at zero divide was sort of like highlighting like where innovation could play in that space and also talking about like what needed to be done to have more of that innovation take place but 
one of the big frustrations for me as being professional in this space was like, oh my gosh, like I'm doing all this great work. Like we're getting a lot of results, like even in a pilot setting, but because uh, all of that work was all grant funded, you know, through foundations, through government, it was incredibly frustrating because basically when the grant ended, like that was kind of it. Like there was, there was no... Uh, kind of planning uh, within that process of, well, how do we kind of spin this out? How do we think about licensing? How do we think about like what sort of business models are necessary to carry this product or this tech enabled service going forward so that, you know, that it can exist as a commercial entity. Yeah. Oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> I come from a nonprofit background, so I can relate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like everyone who I know is a nonprofit is always like, oh my God, this is so wasteful. Like applying for yes. <laughs> kind of, you know, that feeling of spinning your wheels. Yeah. Um, but it was even more frustrating in tech because I'm like, wait, this is really dumb. Like this actually does have a pathway. Like sometimes, you know, programming doesn't necessarily, but all the same, it does need to be supported. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was really uh, what kind of uh, propelled me to start working for myself and consulting for myself was that, you know, I love the sort of pace of innovation that I was seeing at places like Rock Health, but I missed the impact. And I love the impact that I was having at Zero Divide, but I missed the fact that there wasn't really like a way, like a forcing factor in terms of getting out of that sort of basically reinventing the wheel every time we yeah. took on a new client. Um, and so I started consulting just with different startups and different like city governments and sort of other organizations that were trying to do this work and, and think about doing it in different ways that could be more sustainable. Uh, it was also a really great way for me to both like to stay active in the market and for me as a professional to start thinking about this, which is how um, I got started on my current venture, which is called P2 Health Ventures, which is a venture fund to invest in these technologies that are expressly are addressing preventive health and population health, so the health of, of vulnerable populations. Nice. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. yeah. And so it's sort of a learn, learn as you do kind of thing, which is a very techie thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> totally. You are in the groove of the Bay Area. Yeah. Like. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, that is, that really makes sense. And I think it speaks to like at least a lot of people in the Bay Area, but I think in general, like how women are feeling just like, just in terms of like really wanting to be creative and make an impact at the same time and trying to find different outlets to do that. And I'm happy to be hearing more and more that I'm talking to women as we're kind of, you know, working on this piece with women in tech, that there are tons of women out there finding out ways to do that. Um, but, you know, of course, like, there is a gender imbalance in most yeah. areas of tech. And I imagine a lot of disparities in public health, of course, as well. <laughs> um, I mean, how do you see these kind of relate or contribute to each other? Um, you're, I mean, you're doing a lot to make an impact um, otherwise, but you know, in your maybe previous experiences, where have you kind of seen this play out? And how is that different um, for women of color? Yeah, I mean, I've seen it play out in a number of ways. So, you know, even going back to my rock health experience, like one of, you know, even just like one of the issues there, like, so my work was expressly focused on increasing gender diversity, but it also felt kind of constrained. Like I couldn't actually address like intersectionality and because we were based in the Bay area, like that's not really like the rhetoric of gender diversity that I find really takes place. Like regardless of whether you're talking about digital health or just sort of tech overall, like in general, you know, gender is the sort of the face of gender is usually like white women and the face of like race and ethnicity is like black men. And as a woman of color, yeah. So frustrating because it's like you can only choose one. Uh, and so there's yeah. that frustration of it. 
I think even in Zero Divide and like talking about a lot of these initiatives, like, uh, you know, you know, I, I might've been working with, um, you know, maybe my client was a, a little bit more kind of like progressive or open-minded uh, in terms of like who they thought like possessed expertise to be innovative in this space. And so, you know, I might be working with people who in general were pretty more, like were a lot more diverse, but then again, you know, those were also the same folks that even if there had been a pathway commercially for them to go take that, if they had tried to go out and raise funding, like it pretty much would have been a non-starter. Like, what is it like less than 1% of women of color like companies like actually secure venture funding. And that doesn't, you know, and then of course, like there's a, you know, increasing tail somewhat, somewhat when you look at other sources of funding, but still like the issue still remains is that, you know, even if you just decide to go out on your own and like, I'm encountering this like myself as we are going out with the fundraising process, it is in general, it's incredibly hard to raise for a fund. And sometimes when we get feedback, it's like, you can't help but question. I'm like, well, if I looked different, like what would this response be? Because yeah. you see announcements oh all God. the time about funds coming out. And it's like, that criticism doesn't seem to be particularly valid insofar as like what you are not giving to me. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, I think yeah. that- if I was going to ask you about that. Like, cause it seems like, you know, I've heard that a lot that women in tech and particularly women of color, like really feel like they have to constantly fight a believability factor. Like, oh, you couldn't possibly be an expert in this. So, I mean, do yeah. you think it has a lot to do with why there's such a like low percentage of getting funding? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a chicken and the egg sort of thing. So what is it that there was a Harvard Business Review article that came out a few months ago, and I believe it was on a study done in Sweden. And basically, they either put microphones in or sat in on pitch meetings uh, with VCs um, that uh, basically were listening to pitches from male founders and from female co-founders. And even they were able to literally quantify and characterize the pushback that women were getting versus men were getting. Like men were like basically praised for their potential and like women were expected to kind of like go above and beyond and like show both how their past experience as well as their plans for the future were going to make this company be successful. So it's just this idea that like- so you frustrating. <laughs> you, you encounter all, all of these hurdles and then that doesn't even get to you. Like that's the sort of, you know, to me that's the external part of it. And then of course the internal issues are like all of the imposter syndrome, which I know like I have certainly been subject to like this yeah. idea of like, maybe I'm not good enough. Like, you know, you always hear the conventions about like, what is it like job applications? Like men tend to apply if they feel that they meet two to three out of 10 criteria. Whereas like women really won't apply until they feel they meet six to seven. Right. Right. <laughs> I heard that too. And it was, I think I, someone told me that when I was in a job application process and I was like, ah, that needs to change. Yeah. It lit a fire it, under me. I'll say that. <laughs> yeah. And it is. And it's like on one hand, but like then again to the external piece, like, you know, even if you read about those things and you're like, ah, screw that. I'm just going to, you know, apply for things and, you know, work my network to the extent, but like, you're still going to get pushed back. And so it, it kind of ends yeah. up, you end up in this vicious cycle. Um, and so, you know, even me as, as now that I'm an emerging fund manager, like one of the things that I'm most excited about, like when we do get to the point, like where we have closed our fund is that like it's going to help disrupt that cycle part of the reason that i think that um that women of color like people of color like other like women like don't get funding is because most of the investors are white men um so if we can start getting more investors who are more diverse and like not to say that merely like your demographic background is going to determine your investing approach but it is 
your lived experience is already just going to change the way that that process takes place. Like whether, yeah. yeah. And so like, that's the way that I look at it is like, you know, it's not to say that I'm going to go out and fund 100% like all black women led teams, but it is to say that like, Hey, I'm going to go out and as an investor, I'm going to make different mistakes and that's going to result in different outcomes. And, and, and generally, so that's more positive because like, like, you know, that there, there's more companies that are, you know, that people are taking a risk on, there's more opportunity. Like those folks are going out to grow their companies, potentially employing more folks. Like to me, it like, it starts a virtuous cycle rather than a vicious one. And so I'm very much so excited about that. I like that virtuous cycle. Absolutely. And you know, that makes me, that reminds me of me totally geeking out on your website a little bit. And (laughs) (laughs) yes, I did that. Um, But it really struck me like when you were talking about how you know, digital, you know, digital health apps that are available today, like how many of them like work with doctors instead of nurses. And I, you know, it made me think a lot about like, you know, how much does this relate to gender disparity? Um, And like, how does that cross race lines if it does? I mean, yeah, it just got me thinking. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny whenever you go to these digital health conferences, like one, you know, they definitely like recycle folks, but I feel like every every conference you ever go to, like, yeah, you kind of see the same people and like, that's an ongoing issue. But <laughs> sure. yeah, sure. even more than that, like the, the role-based repetition is like what gets me, like my, my mom's a, well, now she's retired, but she was a nurse and like taught nursing for forever. And it was one of those things that surprised me most like when I first moved out here, that I was like, wait, I see doctors everywhere that are either starting companies or advising companies or in fact are chief medical officers. But then there's like all this buzz, like that's one of the big things like in digital health is talking about patient engagement. Um, but you see, you generally see like nary a nurse or a pharmacist, like, which generally also just happen to end up be more diverse, like professionally, like as a profession, like it's not to say that there aren't like, of course, like female doctors, like people of color who are doctors, but in general, like as you sort of move into other roles, like, like obviously like nursing tends to be more female dominated. It also tends to have a lot more people of color, tends to have a lot more immigrants, like, you know, as right. a, and, like, yeah. it's just a lot more diverse than medicine. Um, and then, you know, of course, there's like a lot of other health professionals that no one really thinks about, but that are very important, like pharmacists, nutritionists. Um, nutritionists also tend to be more female dominated and generally like public health as a profession tends to have as a slight more like female edge. I mean, it kind of depends on what roles you're looking at, like, but sure. in general, there are more women um, working in sort of governmental public health than there are men. Uh, and so, you know, it does kind of beg the question, like, all the people who have the money are working on the medicine side, which is more male dominated. And like all the people are working more on like health outcomes and like more patients tend to be more female dominated, but well, and isn't it true? And I might be, you're definitely the professional. So you will hopefully tell me if I'm wrong, but isn't it true that just based on a lot of the changes with the affordable care act, that so many more, you know, primary care type duties were added to nurses' agendas anyway to like compensate for the influx of patients coming in or am I getting that completely wrong? Um, I mean, it's, that's not solely the only reason. Like somewhat of it is just because as a country, like we rely too much on specialists and because it's because specialists get paid more. So we just, one, we don't have enough primary care doctors. And even for the ones that we do, like, like we don't, like not enough 
they basically don't take on enough of the sort of like basic tasks. Like it might be someone presents like with a cough and all of a sudden they're seeing like a pulmonologist. Like, I mean, that's a very extreme example. Sure. <laughs> um, but, but it's that idea that in general, like primary care is supposed to be the bedrock of medical practice. And because of the way that we both train and compensate physicians, um, it doesn't really function that way. Um, and, and also because, like I said, like there aren't enough primary care doctors. So a lot more care is being pushed to nurses just because like, like doctors can only do so much like they get paid by the 15 minute increment and if they don't do exactly the 15 minute increment then they're losing money and they're already operating on thin margins already right like you get it and like to be honest like physicians don't like it either like if you look on like you could probably google now like physician dissatisfaction and they will be complaining about everything from electronic health records to the brevity of their appointments to the fact that they really don't feel like like they feel like they're turning away patients sometimes at the end of the appointment. They're like, I'm pretty sure that person doesn't either remember or understand what I was trying to explain to them. Sure, uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not a good work. And, you know, and that's not what they became doctors for right? Uh, to do all this admin work. Um, so it's it, an, an interesting, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. But, healthcare is in public health in particular is just another fascination of mine. So thanks for letting me just momentarily geek out and only slightly get off topic. But. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, I geek out all, all the time. <laughs> okay. Well, we're kindred spirits in that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like for us as a fun too, it's like, you know, both like, so my co-founder and I, Mar- Marquesa Finch, she's also uh, been working in healthcare for a long time. And ironically enough, like she also comes from a global health background and then started working in tech first at Kaiser and then at a number of startups. And then okay. he was yeah. at uh, Cape Four Center for Social Impact and Cape Four Capital. Um, and so of course they as a fund really focused on investing in underrepresented founders. Um, and so for us, both in terms of personally, as well as professionally, like, you know, this decision to make sure that we are looking at diversity is it again investment criteria and so we look at that both in terms of like how like diverse founders and how teams are built as well as how they are interacting with the communities that they are selling or working in um that's something that's very important to us because we know that you know historically that that's not been the case like that you do see more diverse founders or that it to the extent that there are companies that are working in this space that a lot of times that they kind of either operate in kind of more predatory or uh yeah. just uh solely focused on profit motive and so they're actually kind of doing a disservice like you know we kind of think of even like the idea of like payday loans like yes they're company and they're providing a service but is it actually doing good for the people at the end of the day um, nope <laughs> <laughs> Sure not. <laughs> no. Yeah. So, so we there there are healthcare equivalents of of that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I know we only have a couple of minutes, but I did want to ask you as well, just you know, because so many there's been a lot of media attention around kind of the cultural culture of sexual harassment, in particular, present in Silicon Valley. And I know a lot of women have kind of been speaking out, um, you know, against that, of course, in the community. Do you have any thoughts on that? Have you, you know, you know, experienced any of that? I, I mean, I hope not, but also yeah. at the time I feel like everybody has. So, I mean, do you have any, any comments to say about that? Uh, yeah. So I haven't experienced like the, like the explicit, like sexual harassment, like being asked out on dates per se and like that that level yeah. but I mean I feel like any woman well who's 
been in the workplace honestly has had like the other like mansplaining like men taking credit for work that you did like all of those sort of things which are both like irksome but also can affect like your ability to like be promoted and like so you know all yeah they're microaggressions in essence yeah yeah I mean you know and I try to distinguish between because to me like microaggression is like oh that was really annoying that you just repeated something I said like that to me is a microaggression but when I see things like people getting credit for work that I've done or like being, Mm, you know, publicly thanked for work that I've done or being like, wow, like you're working really hard. And then you look at their workload. And if you were to quantify it, it's like a three, but you're at a six, like that kind of stuff to me, like that kind of like starts, it's like a step beyond microaggression because that to me is really, hey, and once you start talking about pay, like it's not just like hurt feelings, like that actually has a demonstrable effect on like my well-being, um, and and the decisions that I'm making, and the the ability for me to exercise certain decisions, um, because it does affect pay. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And uh, what should we what should we coin as that term? I mean, yeah, I don't know what the like micro macro like micro and macro. There must be an, an intermediate meta meta. <laughs> Meta aggression. There's there's a Latin. (laughs) We'll work on it, but no, I I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, unfortunately, as women, I think yeah, we can all relate to maybe not as explicitly as getting out asked out on a date, but definitely mansplaining, um, being ignored in meetings, not getting promotions quickly enough, even if you're producing more quality work or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I definitely agree. And especially when it's impacting your potential livelihood and success, then that is much more than a microaggression, I would agree. Yeah. And then, I mean, I think, so I moderated a panel like at the first Tech Inclusion Summit too, and it was on intersectionality. And I think as a black woman, I sort of, I get other things too that aren't those sexual harassment. Like I once had a boss who touched my hair in the workplace. I'm I'm not and that was what was so funny I mean not funny but like you know when I was doing this panel you know it was a side session so like the room is like decently full but obviously not completely full but I randomly decided to ask I was like how many black women in this room have had their hair touched at work and at least a good two-thirds of folks raise their hands and it's sort of like it's like those sort of things that like you know where intersectionality like shows up in the workplace that I think that don't get talked about as much and like where people don't have to deal with, you know, I had a friend who said, you know, she was sitting there, she worked at a really, really large tech company. She was like drinking a beverage in one of their break rooms and someone came up to her and they were like, tell me what's the deal with this new rap song that's out. And it was someone who she didn't really know particularly well, but since she was the black woman, I guess they just assumed that she must be up on rap music. Oh and- God. so incredibly short-sighted it's like (laughs) I can't even oh yeah that's really annoying are there any other like distinctions for intersectionality that you know we should call out while we have a last minute here or any advice that you want to give to women out there who are trying to make a difference and you know we're helping vulnerable populations in tech yeah I would say um 
one, like know yourself very well, like know what keeps you working at your best and don't be afraid to follow through on that. Like I have a friend who's actually getting ready to move to Jordan. And so she's got like some concern wow. about the whole, you know, being able, you know, inability to wear shorts and things like that. And I was like, honestly, like what I've been a black person traveling in, you know, places like China and Russia. And like, you just have to be unabashedly okay with the fact that like okay maybe you need to withdraw or maybe you need to just go sit in a really fancy expat hotel so like whatever that is for the tech worker like that they need to you know have those spaces where they feel like that they are okay like if you're spending eight hours 10 hours 12 hours at work um you know find a space that's like outside of your office where you can go sit in and kind of like you know, have space to yourself and collect yourself. Um, and I say a second important corollary for that too is like find a community that's super supportive. Um, you know, women of tech, like that Facebook group is like really like I've been in as well. Um, for black women, there are a couple of different Facebook groups for the, they, well, they're not just Bay Area focused, but that are around like black women in tech that are pretty active. And like, that's been really great having that supportive community. And like, we'll do things like events like Soul Cycle classes and um, you know, it might do like more professional events. We'll do like social events. Like we had like a self-care, like day party kind of thing at a local store as well a few weeks ago. So I think nice. the importance of community is, is super huge. And I think third, like, you know, also like have an agenda, like I'm, <laughs> it sounds weird, but I'm a big believer in the fact that like the fact that you're merely getting a paycheck at your job is actually not an even trade-off. Like like look for things like in your work that are like value adds to either you as a person or to you as your career that you can be getting out of it and making sure that you are moving forward on those. Like I think part of the reason that the microaggressions become like very wearing is because you just sort of show up to work and you go through the motions or you're, you're kind of trying like so much like to do your job in a particular way, like according to the bullet points that's on your job description that you don't really, you know, think more expansively about what does this really mean for you? Um, and so that's kind of what I mean about like having an agenda, like have all like a holistic view and plan, you know, at least for what you want your life to look like in the next three to six months. Um, and you know, have your day, like be focused on that, not necessarily just like your job, like narrowly. Uh, because I do think that, that people who are underrepresented in tech, in tech oftentimes are called upon to do work that is not their job. Like whether it's like being active in the ERGs or, you know, being asked to fetch coffee simply because you are the woman or like all of that sort of stuff. And so by having that sort of plan and that agenda, like you can be clear on like how you can not fall into those sort of things and become resentful and burnt out. Yes. I love that. <laughs> that is <laughs> solid advice. I'm like, I'm writing this down real quick. <laughs> Again, that was Vanessa Mason. Tune in to our next episode to continue listening to Disrupting the Narrative of Women in Tech miniseries.